Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. You may also recognize my face or my voice as the host of our other podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast where each week we dedicate those conversations to best-selling authors, business titans, and often celebrities that have something interesting to say about leadership. And after, gosh, 270 plus episodes and five years, we learned that it wasn't always the superstar Pulitzer Prize winning author or the big screen celebrity that got the most downloads or reviews or likes. It was oftentimes people like you and I that have had extraordinary journeys in their careers even, on the way to the C-suite. And as all of us are looking to improve our own leadership skills, it's great to have conversations with people like us that are you know, a year or two or a degree or two or maybe a floor or two ahead of us on their careers. And today I'm honored that one such person is again joining us. His name is Dr. G. Joe James. He is the Chief Medical Officer for Johnson & Johnson Medical Devices. Joining us from New Jersey, Dr. James, welcome to C-suite Conversations. Thank you so much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and honestly, having listened to some of your 53 or so podcasts, uh, I think it's an honor. I'm, I'm looking at the esteemed list of guests that, that you've had on the show and truly question why you have me here, but looking forward to the conversation. Well, there's no question once our audience listens to your podcast, you are an, an enormously complex accomplished physician and now have a crucial role at one of the major global companies that helps create life-saving you know, medical devices and opportunities for us. So I think everyone will leave today having a better appreciation for Johnson & Johnson, including your career. And by the way, you have the coolest name in the history of mankind. I mean, naming G. Joe James, that's just fantastic. So that's a different conversation altogether. Dr. James, would you take a few minutes and maybe rewind a couple of decades, talk about what your journey was in your career, maybe highlight a couple of your roles. I know you spent some time at Pfizer and now at J&J as and this in the C-suite, talk a little bit about your journey, and then we'll get into some of the lessons that could be plucked out of that for our watchers and listeners. Sure, no, absolutely, uh, Scott, and I'll, I'll try to be succinct. I took a rather improbable path to get here, um, definitely like a lot of your listeners, driven by purpose, hard work, and perhaps a lot of luck, or in the words of one of your guests, uh, Stuart Lacey, I listened to him yesterday evening on my drive, serendipity. Um, the, the way I look at my journey so far, I kind of divide it into three stages, the formative years, um, the learning growth, and probably the pursuit of what I call the next shiny. Um, and then finally setting into purpose uh, the shift from the next shiny to my pinnacle role. Um, so maybe start with the formative years. And I truly believe that many of us are products of our upbringing and the environment that we grew in. And I was no different. I grew up in India. In the 70s and 80s, I was exposed to a multicultural, multi-ethnic resource-constrained environment, and that helped me appreciate not only the value of different perspectives, but required me to grab every opportunity that came my way and make the best of it. Somehow the word choice um, seemed like a luxury that I could ill afford. Um, added to that, growing up, watching my mother, who was diagnosed with gestational diabetes when pregnant with my elder brother, left a profound impact on me. You've got to remember, this is a time when diabetes was not well understood. Um, for example, insulin was given to her based on the color of her urine sugar. So I grew up kind of seeing my dad mix urine with Benedict solution, heating it over a burner, and then deciding how much insulin she should be given that day. So in a way, it was kind of natural 
for me to study medicine. And fortunately for me, even that turned out to be a unique experience. I went to St. John's Medical College in Bangalore, which many may know is a mission-driven minority medical school in India. And there also, not only was there cultural, socioeconomic, or gender diversity, but my class of 60 had 12 religious sisters, i.e. nuns. So working alongside a diverse group of students was instrumental when you had to train to be a physician service, serving rural and impoverished neighborhoods. Um, I had an opportunity to practice briefly, both in a rural and urban, urban setting. And while I enjoyed my interactions with patients, I realized my passion was perhaps for broader healthcare delivery. And I recognized the lack of physician input into population health. And that's what brought me to the US to do my master's in public health from Columbia. And my wife, who I met in medical school, uh, she wanted to pursue a career in physical med and rehab. And she went on to do a residency at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. So that brings me to the second stage, um, living the stereotypical immigrant version of the American dream, learning, growing, and the relentless pursuit of the next shiny. So mainly out of necessity, and I'm eternally thankful for that, I needed to work to support my education. It was the late 90s and the dot-com era was in full bloom. I had learned some Oracle and Visual Basic along the way. So I was this dangerous medical techie combination in a target-rich environment. And I spent the next eight plus years in a combination of management consulting and healthcare technology. I was having a blast, learning a lot. Uh, as you know, Scott, consulting really pushes and drives your learning agility and that gets am amplified um, when you're working in a small boutique firm, uh, interacting directly with the C-suite of some of the largest uh, physician pair uh, pharma groups. Um, Somewhere along that journey, I realized uh, while I was enjoying what I was doing, I'd moved far away from that mission of delivering healthcare. And I was able to course correct and adjust when I joined Pfizer as a medical director in a group managing disease management services. The work was exciting and fulfilling. Just imagine managing Medicare, Medicaid populations in state like, states like Florida across six disease states, or thinking about how to address obesity childhood obesity in Alabama. I truly felt I was living into my purpose. I was growing within the company and then through pure serendipity, landed a role uh, that probably changed the way I thought about career and purpose. And that kind of brings me to the third part, um, settling into purpose, the shift from the next shiny to the pinnacle role. I had just landed the role as chief of staff to the new chief medical officer of Pfizer, Dr. Frieda Lewis Hall, who had been hired to kind of lead the newly created Pfizer medical organization directly reporting to the CEO. And you can only imagine the adrenaline rush of that opportunity working with the C-suite of one of the largest biopharmaceutical companies in the world. Um, and the excitement clearly paled in comparison um, to anything in the past clearly paled in comparison to that experience. But all that was to change when one day Frida asked me, Gija, what's your pinnacle role? I stared blankly at her, wondering what pinnacle meant. Um, you know, I thought you just climbed one mountain after the other. And as long as the heights were progressively increasing, all was good. She responded with a quick no and said, that's the next shiny. Um, and you've done that with good effect till now. She asked me, what's the last job? 
if you could choose, what would that be? And that was not a trick question, but kind of helped me rethink from the next job to the next experience. Um, I always knew why my purpose was to be the best human that I could be and impact the greatest number of people around me. But this provided a more purposeful and deliberate way of getting there. It was transformational. It led me on a development assignment with Pfizer back to India, managing medical safety and regulatory operations. And from there to the US as a chief medical officer of J&J Consumer, and then J&J MedTech for about the past five and a half years now. One phrase you've mentioned several times is quote, the next shiny. And I, I'm interested to know, you know your, your career trajectory seems extraordinarily deliberate. You've also mentioned the term serendipity. As you look back on your career, how much of it was quite deliberate versus some of it was, quote, kind of chasing the next shiny, but it just worked out well for you? Kind of you know, answer that however you'd like, because I think everyone is thinking about their career differently post-pandemic, right? People are much more grounded now in their purpose and the fragility of life, and, 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 and they have career ambitions, but you get a sense that people are looking at their lives and their careers in a whole different lens. If there's any silver lining that's come out of the trauma, the travesty of the COVID pandemic is that people are taking their, I think, careers more deliberately, maybe more deliberately to be open to serendipity. How would you address all of that? I think the, the short answer to your question is I've been probably more deliberate and more purposeful um, over the probably the last 10 to 12 years of my career. I would say I was just clearly fortunate to have made the right choices early on, be it in consulting, getting into healthcare tech, uh, learning from from the C-suite, kind of figuring out that next title and role, um, et cetera. Probably one of the biggest problem mistakes that I could have made and that turned out wonderfully for me was when one day out of sheer frustration at Pfizer, something had gone wrong, terribly wrong at work. I was angry and I just went onto the job site and applied for this role to be the chief of staff to the chief medical officer. I was not on any... Um, you know, succession planning had not been highlighted as, as talent uh, to be nurtured and developed in the company. At least I was not aware of that. But that clearly helped me pivot my career because working with a, a sponsor like Frida truly helped me think a, a lot better. And, you know, lesson learned was trying to balance for the curves and not the straight and narrow. And just that shift from thinking about What's the next title? What's the next role where, you know, I'm going to be managing more people or a bigger budget to what's your purpose and where are you headed? That was truly shape-shifting for me. I mean, it's a, it's a question of great gravity, right? What's your purpose? We, we talk a lot about it. We read a lot about it. Uh, I'm 54, like you. I'm a parent and a, and a husband. I have three young boys that are 8, 10, and 12. And I somewhat reluctantly think that, in fact, my purpose might be as a dad uh, and, and that my career really is just in service to my purpose, you know, as a provider and for these three young boys. That would not have been my chosen purpose. I didn't want to be a dad per se, but I think it's a great reminder for people to maybe to use the term less ethereal and less pithy and really ask yourself, like, what's my purpose? You know, statistically, the average age for a white American male upon death is about 78, you know, higher for certain socioeconomic levels, but about 78 for a white Cauca or a Caucasian male in America. And I'm 54. I've lived 70 something percent of my life, right? And 
I only have about 24 years left, maybe 30 at the most. It's sobering to kind of understand, you know, what does the end of your life look like and how are you going to live your purpose? I appreciate you reminding us of that. I think the other way to look at purpose, and I was I was reminded of this along that transformative journey, is to think about legacy. What's your legacy? And and to me, it's defined in, in probably three simple things, right? It's uh, uh, what you leave behind, who you bring behind, and what you've learned along the way. I think that that what you leave behind and and what you've learned along the way are rather things that we all kind of understand and get to. But part of that legacy is who you bring behind. What's the followership that, that you build, at least for me? And how have you developed people? And that's something that is a two-way street because every time I talk to mentees or people that, that I sponsor, I also remind them that, you know, they are doing me a favor as, as well and that I'm learning from them. So I think it, it kind of all fits in well together when you, when you think about who you are, what your purpose is, and what's the legacy you're looking to leave behind. I can assure you that our listeners will, will be rewinding this two minutes to listen to that clip several times because that was profound. Uh, I want to take a bit of a left turn here and go back to your upbringing in India. Uh, I've been to India three or four times over the course of my career with Franklin Covey. We have a large operation in India. And uh, India changes so dramatically every couple of years, right? And, you know, 30, 40 years ago was very fundamentally different than the India you would go to now in terms of education and wealth and opportunity. But there are parts of India that have unrecognizable challenges to the average American. What would you say to the, the, the perhaps typical American business leader, business contributor that's listening to today's podcast to say, what would you like them to know about the biggest lessons you learned from being raised in India, not knowing your socioeconomic upbringing, uh, there's some horrifying, abject poverty in India that no one can relate to in America. It's seared into my memory, right? Seared after driving the streets and seeing what's happened there, and there's also been amazing progress made. So is there anything that you would remind what is generally a pretty remarkably privileged American listenership to say, be grounded in this, be mindful of that? No, that's, that, that's a great question, Scott, and, and you've described what people stereotypically think about India, right? If you uh, listen, uh, if you've watched the movie Slumdog Millionaire, or most recently, um, if you've been following the Golden Globes, uh, the movie RRR got uh, um, nominated and won the award for the best score. Um, again, that that's the portrayal of what stereotypical India is. To me, India was you know, this this melting pot of that was, as I stated, multicultural, multi-ethnic, uh, where we took every opportunity as a godsend and tried to make most of it. Um, and, and that's what kind of drove drove drives our sense of, of purpose. There's, there's, there's a term that, that's commonly used and some of uh, your Indian listeners will, will relate to it called Jugaad, which basically means we'll figure it out. Um, and that's driven by that thirst to, to achieve. And when it comes to, to poverty and need to, to provide services, there is tremendous need in India. I will not deny that. But honestly, even out here, you know, being part of, of my church community and having done the midnight runs um, a couple of times uh, in the past, you walk the streets of New York at 12 midnight. Sure. 
and you see what we're dealing with, the challenges are not very different. It's a different lens, it's a different flavor, but the, the gap between the haves and have-nots is huge. The gap in healthcare um, between those who can afford and those who cannot is huge. It just gets amplified in a country that has over a billion people. Let's pivot to um, the pharma industry. Uh, depending upon someone's congressional campaign and how desperate they are to win, you're going to often hear to your industry known as big pharma, right? As the, the big dominating evil people making billions of dollars at the expense of the person who can't afford their medicine. And I'm sure that's not a wrong depiction in someone's point of view. However, um, the more rational person would know that it is because of the risk and the dedication of people like you that spend your entire careers dedicated to solving problems and bringing life-saving technologies and medicines and, and opportunities to save lives. I'd like you to maybe uh, correct, any mis correct any beliefs, mindsets, or paradigms that you've had from dedicating your entire career nearly to the biotech and biopharmacy industry. Talk about how mission-driven Johnson & Johnson is. Certainly, you know, you are an ambassador for the firm. People will expect for you to extol the mission. But the fact of the matter is, you know, you probably could have made a lot more money working for McKinsey, right? Or doing something else, but you've chosen, I'm sure you've done well financially, but you've chosen to dedicate your entire life to bringing life-saving technologies and medicines to people. Talk about why you did that and how would you like for the typical consumer to see Johnson & Johnson? No, that's, that's a great question, Scott. And I don't think there's gonna be one magical sentence or word that I could say that would change the perception in certain people. As you said, those perspectives are probably driven by some life experiences and, and are to be respected. But that said, I think you will recognize what's unique about J&J &J is our credo. It's a document that was, uh, that clearly kind of lays out our, our purpose and was written by one of our uh, early founders just before the company went public. Uh, it's over 75 years old. And what it does, it, it states our priorities and it leads off with the patient. It leads off with the fathers, mothers. Uh, it leads off with people. Then it talks about our responsibilities to our employees and to our community. And if we were to do all of that right, obviously we would return value to, to our shareholders. And even within j, &J I'm fortunate to belong to a group um, that's called the Office of the, of the Chief Medical Officer. Um, that's an independent function that sits outside of R&D and commercial. Um, and it's tasked to drive ethics-based scientific and medical excellence across the company. I don't think many people recognize the number of physicians and scientists who actually work within life sciences companies who are driven by this common sense of purpose. And within our group, we contribute to the mission or the purpose of J&J that's to blend heart science and ingenuity to profoundly change the trajectory of health for humanity. But we do that by taking a evidence-based principled actions approach that puts people first. And that means that we need to have the ability to consistently drive science and data and ensure that we're keeping patients at the center, especially under challenging circumstances. Dr. James, think about uh, the three or four decades of your career. I'm guessing we're about the same age, so maybe about three decades. 
Is there any particular lesson that you learned, perhaps through the result of you know, your naivete or you made a poor uh, decision or you just were ignorant, that you look back and thought, gosh, that was a big lesson. And if I could teach that to someone else, man, the pain that that could save her or him and their family or career or whatever. Is there, is there something you look back to say, that was a profound moment of truth in my career. Maybe not something you did right, but something, some situation you were in that was challenging that you said, well, I really want people to avoid repeating that in their career. So I think I gave a positive example earlier, right, in, in terms of how I landed that role at, as yes. chief of staff to the CMO at Pfizer. I could have clearly gone wrong, probably not the right, right approach. But maybe I'll kind of pivot to the shift that I had when I moved from consumer to, to med tech and when my manager and mentor, Dr. Joanne Wallstriker, who's the CMO at, at J&J, asked me if I might be interested in moving. I said, sure, why not? You know, I'd spent my entire career on the therapeutic side. I'd effectively managed change before. Could not be that difficult, right? Uh, what, what's, what's a big deal? And, uh, you know, it's, it's then that it, it hit me. The big difference between farm and devices is that, Scott, whether you prescribed a drug to a patient or I prescribed a drug to a patient, um, the outcomes are pretty much going to be the same, hopefully, on, on that patient, right? But when you come to medical devices, there is an operator in the middle. And that can make a huge difference in terms of the outcome that the patient experiences. And that was something that I was not prepared for. That's something that I did not realize um, and, and was a humbling experience. And it required me to rely heavily on my learning agility, but also to kind of have the humility and be the one to admit, to say that, no, I've not been here, I've not done that. Um, I had to rely heavily on my team of experts, uh, be inquisitive and not be afraid of appearing stupid when I asked some fundamental questions. And it gave becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable a whole new meaning. And that truly was a humbling, humbling journey. I mean, it's such a great phrase, right, is being comfortable, being uncomfortable, asking a question that some might in the room think is incredulously, fundamentally rudimentary, but your ability to ask it quick and get the answer exponentiates your learning and your maturity and your ability to lead others. Beautifully said. Uh, you've also mentioned on a couple of occasions when you've referred to your previous leader, without, without in hesitation, you've referred to them as your sponsor or your coach or your mentor. I'm guessing throughout your career, you've had both great and maybe not so great leaders what do you think are some of the chief characteristics in 2023 that make a great leader who also is a sponsor and mentor? So I think you're asking for two different but, but related answers, right? To, to me, a great leader is someone who's, who's present, who's genuine, um, who's trustworthy and inspiring, someone that you can connect with. Um, someone that you have a deep satisfaction on, on working together with. Um, and when you elevate that to a mentor, it's, it's somebody who can guide and help you through your career. But when you go to a sponsor, you're clearly putting that on steroids, right? This then becomes the individual who is clearly invested in you, 
who understands you and is able to go to battle for you, uh, irrespective of whether it is in their best interest or, or not, they, they do it because at times doing that means that they may lose you as a colleague, but they help you on that, on that trajectory. But I think if there's anything that the pandemic has taught us, Scott, it is the value of human relationships and the value of maintaining and nurturing um, those relationships. I think that that human touch has taken a whole new meaning over these past two plus years. Dr. James, uh, again, profoundly said, let's talk about what a day in the life of the chief medical officer of medical devices for J&J &J looks like. So glamorize it a bit and can take, take the last four days and put them together. And I mean, like, don't, you know, perhaps you're in an all day meeting today or whatever that is, but you know, what does a day in the life of the chief medical officer of medical devices for J&J &J look like? So I'm not going to do the last four days specifically because as you know, it's beginning of the year and you're in the middle of business planning and those things are definitely not, not fun. <laughs> but what I will refer to is I, I think I have there, there are no two days that really look the same because part of what we do is to proactively manage risk. And that means that we're constantly looking uh, at some of our complaints data. We're looking at publications. We're talking to physicians who are using our devices to understand what challenges they may be facing and trying to identify whether that truly is a signal, a risk, something we need to do something about, or something that's known that we really don't need to react to. So there's a lot of proactively managing risk. And that also goes back into the development cycle when, when we look at some of our, our devices, right? Then there is trying to support and ensure that we're driving the best outcomes possible. So working with some of the surgeons to figure out what can we do in that OR to minimize risk? Um, how can we improve communications within the operating team? And then you spend a bunch of time externally in driving the science. Technology is advancing rapidly. We work very closely with regulators, with key stakeholders to ensure that we're driving regulatory science so that it can keep up with the pace of technology innovation. So it's kind of a mix of a day, but it's really satisfying because at the end of the day, you're living into that purpose of making a difference in hopefully millions of lives. I mean, I think it's surprising to me, in a positive way to think, much of your time, as you talked about earlier, isn't just spent only on creating life-saving devices, but it's how does that technology break down or come alive in the operating room through the trust, the relationships, the communications, the knowledge, the skill, the humility, the expertise of that team, because you can have the best creative device in the world, but if the team isn't working well together and understanding all of the opportunities, what could go wrong, your devices don't do their jobs. It's, it's, it's great to hear that that's an area of focus, that Johnson & Johnson isn't just focused on you know, shipping the devices to the hospitals, you're intricately involved in making sure everyone knows how to leverage them properly. Will you talk a bit about some of the devices that people might know of or maybe have in their bodies or have used to save their lives that you're responsible for, the team you lead for? Sure, no, no thanks for that. So, so again, we are a largely diversified company when it comes to medtech and I'll broadly divide us into four categories. When you think about surgery, uh, the company that comes to mind is Ethicon and probably known for their sutures, uh, probably about 80% of surgeries conducted around the world 
uh, use Ethicon sutures. But it's not just sutures, it goes to biosurgical materials, it goes to laparoscopic devices, um, it goes to staplers and wound healing um, as, as well, and now into robotics. The second big group is orthopedics, and uh, you're probably more aware of that group for the joints. So your, your knee replacements, your hip replacements, your shoulders, but also trauma. So if anyone were to have an unfortunate accident, broken bones, the nuts, bolts, screws that are used, plates that are used out there, or if you've got spine issues. The third big group is our uh, cardiovascular and specialty solutions. And there we deal with uh, issues such as patients who've got arrhythmias and need cardiac ablation through Biosense Webster or in neurovascular where people may have strokes and we've got devices that can help uh, remove clots or help with bleeds in Serenovus, um, leading on to our aesthetics and uh, breast reconstruction business in, in Mentor. And then the, the fourth segment that I help manage is our vision care and vision surgery. And that goes all the way from contact lenses to devices that are used in surgery, for example, for cataract surgery. How do you keep track of it all? I mean, it's remarkable. Uh, last question. You're not an infectious disease specialist. You are obviously a medical doctor and on the cutting edge of what's happening in the world in terms of uh, uh, healthcare. Uh, on the heels of COVID, after, I think safe to say we're strongly post-COVID, apparently not in China right now, but and by the way, I know a dozen people have COVID in the US, right? <laughs> Hopefully their cases are fairly light right now bad colds, what would you, what advice, what, as apolitical as you want to be, what advice would you give us on what's coming next? Like, what, you know, everyone's got an opinion now around, you know, how the pandemic was handled or not handled or to vaccine or not vaccine and all of that. Everyone's got an opinion, informed or imaginary. Any advice you would give us on kind of like what we're dealing with in the future? What's next? What would you like us to know as a dad, as a spouse, as a doctor, as a, you know, an officer in a big company, what, what do you want us to know about the future, the world we're living in? I think if there's, if there's one thing, just being apolitical, I would look at the silver lining and kind of see that, yes, while we were probably unprepared for the pandemic, the speed with which we have been able to address it, and while the loss of life was tremendous, yeah how we hopefully managed to contain that and the progress that we've made using a science and data-based approach. So I think that is what I would see as a silver lining and probably what I'm encouraged by is this, that same speed has helped us rethink how we identify unmet need and how we address that unmet need it has supercharged the spaces of, as you know, Scott, artificial intelligence and machine learning and how we can use that better. So I would hope that without trying to predict what the next pandemic or epidemic is, is going to be um, and how interconnected this world is, I would hope that we continue to invest in that science and we continue to ensure that enough people dedicate their lives to that, that science so that we're able to address the next challenge that, that we have 
even faster. You know, Scott, the, there's a mantra that I follow. It's it's not necessarily failure that you need to you need to focus on. It's how fast you can recover from that. And we've got to continue to build that recovery muscle so that we can jump back sooner, faster, better than we ever have. I have a, a couple more minutes because I'm finding your insight riveting. Do you feel like our nation, we're taping this in the US, although this is a global podcast, much of the technology and research came out of the US for the COVID vaccine, so not, not exclusively by any stretch, right? Um, Dolly Parton helped, I hear. Um, do you feel like the US is better prepared for the next pandemic? Will there I be a next pandemic in our lifetime? Is this a once in a century thing or is the Pandora's box open and there'll be one similar to this, worse, better, similar coming in our generation? So, so here's a question, right? The question is, should we be in the business of trying to predict whether there will be, there won't be, but trying to use just common sense measures to ensure that we are prepared to deal with the, with the challenge? I think you'll get a mixed scorecard if you look at how well prepared we are. And I'm not going to go into the data. The data is available out there. People have opinions about that. But where I see the difference is I think we come together as humanity and we hold hands and we link together and we learn together. And that's the one thing that we need to continue to build because, you, you know, um, one of my favorite books is a book written by uh, Randy Posh. It's called The Last Lecture, and you may have yeah, sure. read sure, it. Of course. And, and, and he very clearly states in that, right, um, you can't change the hand that you've been dealt a lot of times, but you can determine how, just how we play the game. And I think that is something that we need to keep front and center. And if we do that, we will be ready to handle any challenge that comes before us. I could not be more proud about how we've come together, despite all the challenges and noise that you heard or you hear about how we've, we've come together to, to manage the current challenges. Last question, I promise. Uh, speak to me as a parent. Uh, three boys, uh, eight, 10, and 12. Wentworth, Smith, and Thatcher. Second grade, fifth grade, seventh grade. Uh, when they're applying for a job at J&J &J nine years from now, what are the skills you need me as a parent to make sure they have not mastered, but they have a working knowledge of to get a job at J&J? &J? I'm interested to hear what your answer is on that. Scott, what I would say is I don't think there's anything you can tell them from a skills and knowledge perspective because this generation is going to be teaching us as to what is, is needed. Uh, and they will figure and they will kind of learn that, be data science, artificial intelligence, machine learning, programming like Python, et cetera. They probably will know that a lot better than us. Um, I'll kind of go back to something that my wife says all the time, then, and I think is clearly important in the business world is as a parent to teach them empathy, to teach them to be good human beings. And I think that is what is going to differentiate them and that's what's going to help them succeed in anything that they decide to do. I hope that's where you were going to go and you did not disappoint. Dr. G. Joe James, you are the Chief Medical Officer for Medical Devices at Johnson & Johnson. Graciously gave us nearly 40 minutes of your time today. 
Thanks for joining us. We wish you the best of success. Thank you, Scott. Been a pleasure. Thank you, and we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.